You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. A reading from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 25. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him when, while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees it, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. 
So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a strange task we turn to every week, that you've left us with limited words, limited stories, and you've promised to work by your Spirit through this, your word, to grant life to us, that this word is to become living, and in a real way, transform and change us and do something inside of us. And this morning, as we come every morning, we're humbly putting ourselves under your word and saying, speak, for we, your servants, long to hear. For those of us whose ears are stopped up, whether that be through intentional rebellion or sins or just busyness and exhaustion, Father, speak kindly to us that we might hear, speak in such a way that your voice would get through all the noise that is in our mind, that we might know you and know your love for us in Christ better. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, Well, in my opinion, um, there's been uh, no more... Uh, tragic, no more dramatic leadership, corporate leadership transition than what took place in 2011 in one of America's most well-loved companies. Uh, you know, we, we knew the leader couldn't last forever. We knew that there would be a transition at some point, and in 2010, he announced that for various personal reasons, he was going to step down. And they found a wonderful replacement for this company. He was no slouch. He came with a portfolio of many successful stories. But who could follow in the footsteps of such a giant? I wonder if you know which corporate leadership transition I'm referring to. It's not Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. It's Dunder Mifflin when D'Angelo Vickers had to replace Michael Scott. Um, I'm hoping you laughed a little bit. This is a pretty... pretty intense passage, and I've got a lot, a lot to keep you laughing. Um, you know, you may remember that this was supposed to be hilarious. You know, we find, Steve Carell said he's stepping down. Season 7 was the highest-rated TV show at the time of The Office. Will Ferrell, of all people, comes in and says he will help navigate this transition, and Season 8, eight tanks. I don't think anyone even likes it. And they immediately decided that season nine would be the last season. Now, why do I share it? Listen, this passage is pretty strange as it is. You know, um, we have what feels like some Harry Potter magic and then mocking a bald man and bears coming out of the woods. Um, It's very, it it seems quite uh, perplexing and and quite peculiar. But the big picture of what's happening, I'm going to do my best to help you understand this passage. Uh, At least that's my hope. But the big picture of what is happening in this passage is there is a leadership transition taking place And this transition is bringing about something of a major crisis in the the life of God's people. This is one of the greatest, maybe up to this point in history of God's people, this is maybe one of the most uh, nerve-wracking and tenuous transitions of leadership as the prophet Elijah, who in many ways was the last and only faithful prophet, at least it seemed in the north during one season. He is now transitioning his ministry to a man named Elisha. And it feels as though we are in the midst of a tremendous crisis 
Who could fill Elijah's shoes? How are things going to move forward? And so here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the crisis of this leadership. I want to unpack why it is such a crisis. Then I want to look at this test for the leadership transition that Elijah gives, and then finally the results of the leadership transition. So a crisis, a test, and a result. I have to move somewhat quick. It's a long passage. So let's first discuss this crisis in leadership transition. Let me remind you where we are, okay? Um, It's about 850 B.C. Homer is somewhere writing the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, God's people are in a season of incredible transition. In 2 Kings 1, the chapter right before this one, uh, we find out that it's not just the prophets who are changing, but it's actually the kings who are changing. Wicked King Ahab has died just as God promised. He died a humiliating death, and his son takes the throne. His son's name is Ahaziah. Ahaziah was no better than his father. He inquires of Beelzebub. Uh, He turns to the false gods of the land at the time, and the Lord removes him as well from power, and a new king comes in place named Jehoram. And at the end of chapter 1, we read this new king starts, and at the beginning of chapter 3, we we read the traditional introduction to this king. You could actually cut out chapter 2 from from 2 Kings, and the narrative would almost flow better. So what's happening here is a major interruption. But what the narrator who put these stories together wants you to see is that we are living in a time of major, major transition, not just of Elijah and Elisha. The king is also transitioning, which is a tremendous, tremendous uh, season of anxiety and weight and difficulty. Remember, there's been a civil war. Ten tribes have rebelled. The ten tribes in the north are going under the name of Israel. By and large, they have been completely unfaithful. Their kings have continued to turn to the gods of the nations, the various Beelzebubs and forms of Baal worship. And all that is left, it seems, is the prophet Elijah. It seems as though God's presence amongst his people for these ten tribes is as thin as a thread. That's all that we have. God's promises, his words, his blessings to his people, they're being held on by a very thread to these northern people as the kings continue to pull them down a pattern of rejecting the God who had brought them out of Egypt and rescued them from slavery. And there's one question in their mind in this passage. There's one question in their mind as they learn that Elijah is soon to leave, and it's this. Will God continue to work in the future the way he has worked in the past? Will God continue to work in the present when Elijah leaves the same way he's worked in the past? This is the weight of what is going on in this time, in, in this particular section of the Scripture. This is what the people are dealing with, and it's a relevant question for us today. It's a question many of us ask as we go through various seasons of life where we're seduced by spiritual passivity, where busyness tells us things are more important than our life with God. We look back at passages like this of moments of miracles. Maybe we read stories of church history. Maybe we sit with our grandparents and hear the stories about how close God was, how much their relationship with God impacted their life and the way in which their lives were impacting the neighbors around them. And we find ourselves as a people regularly wondering, the older we get, Is God still working? I don't know about you, but I find the busyness of four children, school routines, extracurricular activities. I remember longingly those days when I felt maybe more alive to God, where something felt more passion rose up inside of me. 
And I wonder, how do I get back to those days where I was so ready to make tremendous sacrifices for God, where his word was so living and active, as I would read it in the morning, I would almost be undone. How do I get back to those moments? Things now feel dry. Each day runs in to the other. Tasks pile up. Nights are filled with anxiety about things I failed to get done the day before. I don't always pray, and when I do, I wonder if the prayers are being heard. Everything feels like it's not like it once was. The same question works through my head as it does to the people in this passage. Is God working in the present the same way he worked in the past? Is it relevant to you? I hope so. Listen, this lesson has been all the more real this past week as I got final and certain confirmation that, unfortunately, we'll have to leave this space for a couple months over the summer as they do renovations inside uh, this school as they plan for the new year. This is nothing new. It seems like church planning is a little bit about studying your Bible and a whole lot about understanding rental agreements in whatever city that you're going to, and I feel quite equipped for the task. However, uh, my usual suspects in which I could find rental agreements have been difficult, and I found myself frustrated, praying, searching, no answer, praying, searching, no answer, and I found myself groveling to God, wondering, do you even hear? Are you even listening? Will you continue to work in the way you did in the past? Will you continue to provide for your people the way you have in the past? Maybe I'll share one more story on a macro scale. Someone who's been something of a hero to me, a mentor from afar, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He's dying of cancer. And as I've seen it, he's been a very, very credible and reasonable and sane voice of Christianity to our very hostile and secular culture. He's dying of cancer. His days are numbered. And I wonder who will speak for the Christian community in a way that won't be embarrassing to us. Who will have these types of gifts and these types of skills? One in which we can take pride in reading his opinion piece in the New York Times, not with fear move paragraph to paragraph. The question is just as real in our day as it was in their day. Will God continue to work in the present the same way he worked in the past? Elijah knows this is the question in Elijah's mind, and that's why he sets up this leadership transition test. Let's look at this test now. Where do we see this test? Well, really, this is what um, verses 2 through 10 are about. If you have your bulletin and you have a pen, one of the easy things you could do to begin to understand a little bit of what's happening in this passage is circle the geographical references. But Elijah is taking Elisha on a tour, and it's a tour with a purpose. It's kind of a test. I realize the names of the cities probably don't stand out to you. Maybe Jericho does. Jordan might. But the names of these cities uh, don't seem uh, all that critical to the narrative to you, but they're critical to understand what Elijah is doing for Elijah. Elisha, sorry. We're going from Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho to the Jordan. And each time what happens? Elisha is told to stay. It's something of a test. And he says, no, Elijah, I will follow you. Each time, a group of prophets come out and tell Elisha, hey, we've heard from the Lord, you know your prophet's soon to disappear. And Elisha says, go away. I want to be with Elijah. These cities are incredibly important, though. Gilgal is the first place where God's people encamped when they entered into the promised land. It was there that the men who had failed to be circumcised, as was the duty under the law, were circumcised, and the Passover was first celebrated in the land. 
Then the narrative moves to the city called Bethel, which is associated with the battle of Ai. You can read about this in Joshua. But this is a place of humiliating defeat because of the sin of one man named Achan. He keeps for himself uh, some of the, the, the spoils of war, and the Lord judges his people. And as they battle in Achan, they lose dramatically, and it seems as though the conquest of their promised land is almost over. Then you go to Jericho, probably the one city you know. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho where they marched around the walls and eventually the city was brought to complete destruction as God's people entered into the promised land that he had promised. Finally, you get to the Jordan River. And you may remember that it was at the Jordan that Joshua, like the leader before him, Moses, strikes the water with Moses' rod and the, the waters part and God's people walk on dry land. What's Elijah doing? He's taking Elisha through a tour of God's faithfulness to them, a tour through all the ways in which God was faithful during a very, very critical point in the history of God's people. What is that point? The transition from Moses to Joshua. At this time, this was the greatest transition anyone could ever conceive of, had ever heard of. How, after Moses dies, will God's people be led? Elijah's showing Elisha, remember, we've been to this place before. God showed himself to be faithful. God showed himself to be faithful. So Elisha passed these tests as they go through this tour, reworking this historical moment. And the final test is Elijah asks of Elisha, what, what do you want from me? What shall I do for you? And Elisha, kind of like good King Solomon, asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. This sounds strange, it's like a double helping, maybe, is one way to say it. If you understood, if you were reading a reader of the Old Testament and very familiar with the law in Deuteronomy, what he's asking for is that he would be treated like the firstborn son, that a double share of the inheritance would be passed on to him, as was custom in this particular society. Treat me like a son is what he's asking. What does Elijah want Elijah to know here? He wants him to know this. And it's a lesson that we need to learn as well, that God's presence is tied to his word and to his spirit, but not to any one man, any one woman. God's presence, God's power, they're tied to his word and his spirit, not to any one man or any one woman. He's showing him that the God of the 1400s is the God of the 850s. And maybe he's showing us that this same God is the God of John the Baptist, the God whose spirit descended like a dove on our Lord Jesus, the God who raised Jesus into the heavens, out from the dead and into the heavens, the God who sends his spirit upon his people. This is what the test is all about, that we might never, ever forget that God's power, that God's nearness and presence are not dependent on one person and their gifts. They're completely dependent upon God and God alone. And how could we forget this? How could I forget this? How could I believe for a second that maybe uh, losing yet another rental agreement was going to be another loss for the church? I'm looking out at people who would not be at our church had we not lost a rental agreement and because of COVID ended up at a park. No, some of you would have never heard of our church. You would have never heard the singing. You would have never wandered in under your own terms. Never heard God's word preached before. God is faithful. He's at work. It's not dependent on a building, and it's not dependent on a person. Don't be afraid. Only trust that our Lord will never leave you. He will never forsake you. This is what Elijah wants Elisha to understand. This is the test, and Elijah gets it. God has always 
and will always be with his people. He will always be found faithful. But next, let's look at the result of this leadership transition. How does it, what, what is the result? And here's where we get to verses 11 through 25. I watched some of you chuckle like children as the she-bears come out and maul the children. What is going on here? This is going to take a minute to help you understand, but the first major part of the transition is really the central focal point of this passage, which is these chariots, these war machines of heaven, horses and chariots coming down. This isn't like an Uber taking Elijah up to heaven. These are symbols of war, of battle. They come and they separate Elijah from Elisha. And, and the same way, you know, when you see like a plastic bag that's on the highway and cars drive past it and it kicks up with the wind because of the speed with which the cars blow past it, a tornado falls, follows in the, in, behind these chariots as they come and Elijah is lifted on one of these tornadoes and he goes into the heavens. Why? I don't fully understand. There's all kinds of speculation. I could spend a lot of time telling you about it. It's quite fun, but I don't know. I do know that the, uh, the narrator in 2 Kings wants us to know that Elijah does not die the way that the kings of the northern kingdom do. The Lord takes him. When it's his time, the Lord takes him. As he's taken into the heaven, Elijah finds his cloak, which falls to the ground, his sort of robe in which he would have worn. And what do we find Elijah doing? Remember I said you've got to follow the geographical markers in this passage for it to make sense. We see him going backwards. First, he takes this cloak and rolls it and strikes the water almost the same way Joshua did with the rod. And in the same way Elijah had just separated the waters Jordan, now Elisha separates the waters Jordan. They then head to Jericho. He's compelled to send out a search party, and he eventually caves. But it's a waste of time. They cannot find Elijah's body. Now, in Jericho, the water is bad. And actually, the text says it's unfruitful. It actually says the, the, the land miscarries is the exact way in which this is worded. And this is because, again, you'd have to be very familiar with the story of, of Joshua and the story of the Old Testament. But after the conquest of Jericho, a curse was put upon Jericho by Joshua. Nothing was to grow there. And there is one man, his name is Hiel, the Bethlite. He's found in 1 Kings 16. He offers up a human sacrifice of his child to the false gods. And somehow in the midst of mocking God's curse on the city of Jericho and him offering up this sacrifice, he begins to rebuild a city on Jericho in spite of God's clear curse on this land. And it seems as though civilization had started to grow in Jericho by this time. However, there's something in the water system, something in the system that causes people to miscarry, animals to miscarry. There seems to be a real and tangible curse. And what does Elijah do here? Elisha do here. Sorry, if your second language is English, I've got to be driving you nuts. Elisha. I should have given them nicknames. Number two. Um, what does he do? What does he do here? A curse is on this land. God's people mock the curse by forming a civilization there when they're told not to on this cursed land. It's birthed off the back of a human sacrifice of this man, Hiel. What, do, what does the prophet do? He becomes an agent of God's grace. He heals the land of its curse. He uses the symbol of salt and water, and he throws it on there, and the land is healed. What is this trying to teach us? Listen, there's no one here, I promise you. No one here. That is so dirty that God's grace can't make you clean. And Elijah is sent out with that message, and he tells this to Jericho, and the curse is lifted off this land. They're healed. 
This is the result. We now have God's power and presence again in the land. And what do we find when God's power and presence are available again? We find God's grace going forth. Telling the most dirty, the most vile of places, birthed off the back of a child sacrifice, grace. You can be clean. God won't punish forever. Then where does the tour go? We go back to Bethel. Here comes the story. Some of you will giggle. And as they're heading to Bethel, we get this story of go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, and the she-bears mauling 42 of them. What is going on? You know? It's an interesting story, but what is going on? A couple of things you've got to understand. The city of Bethel is one of the two places where this sort of golden idol was set up for the, the people of the north to not worship the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to worship their false gods. It was in Bethel. So that is the town in which these youth come. And we're told that they're uh, small boys, which is kind of an unfortunate translation because there's at least 43 of them because 42 of them get mauled. It's most likely that these are a pack of teenage boys coming out. And we're told that they actually come out of their way to meet Elijah, to greet Elijah. They're searching for him. And they say, go up, you bald head. Now, this is weird. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can hardly be out in the sun for like 30 minutes, as you can tell. I'm a little bit red, um, without getting a burn, and I'm not living in the Middle East. So why would a man with a bald head have his head exposed? He would for sure have a covering over his head in the midst of the hot heat. So these are boys that are going out, and they're intentionally going after him. Now, I'm not 100% sure what's going on, but there's at least one of two things that could be happening, maybe more. It seems likely to me that there's a chance that Elisha has actually cut his beard and cut all of his hair as a sign of his mourning for the loss of Elijah, the great prophet. And these youth could be coming out and mocking him about that and saying, go up just the same way Elijah did, be taken up into the clouds. It's possible that that's why they're mocking. It's also possible that Elijah, we do know, was an incredibly hairy man. And Elisha might not be as hairy. And this could have been their way of mocking him. I'm not 100% sure, and for, for, for the most part, it's very hard to make a certain decision upon this. But what we do see Elijah doing is not arbitrarily calling a curse upon them and asking these she-bears to come kill these children. What he's doing is showing himself to be a prophet, which means he's an agent of God's grace. God's power and presence are near. That means God's grace is available. But at the same time, for you who mock, judgment can come. And the judgment here is very specific. In Leviticus 26, 22, we are actually told God promises that when his people rebel, wild animals will be sent to take them away, to destroy them. And we get a picture of that here. What is Elisha doing? He's reminding God's people when God's presence and power are near, yes, grace is available to the most vile of sinner, but God will not be mocked. He will indeed judge. Now, what is this all to learn? I feel like I'm spending most of my time explaining this passage to you. What difference does it make in your life? You're going to go back to work Monday through Saturday. What difference does it make in your life? Listen, I think at the very least we have to all agree that this passage is, is telling us. As Elisha retraces these steps, it's telling you and it's telling me one thing that we can never, never forget. That there is no sitting back on our heels. There's no generation who can say the victory of our grandparents was so great, we have no work to do for the Lord in our generation. No. Every generation afresh, we have a duty to obey the Lord, to follow the Lord, to retrace the footsteps of those who've come before us, to trust 
and to obey the same way we saw our mothers and fathers did before. This is a good warning to us. The golden age has not come. There will always be work to do. No matter how successful our church is, no matter how many churches we might participate in planting, children, you'll always have a lot more work to do. We'll leave you with a ton of work to do. You can never sit back on the successes of your parents. This is what this passage wants us to teach. Every generation is called upon to presently trust, to presently obey. Let me conclude this this way. This is a somewhat tricky passage to preach, and I had fun uh, spending all week long thinking about, you know, go up, you bald head. I scheduled someone to read who may have been a bald head, and I felt like that was rude. I didn't mean to. may have offended them. Um, They'll find another church. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) What does this passage mean? What difference does this particular passage mean? Friends, the original audience who would have read this, who, who this book was written to, were people in exile. They're people who were either taken by the Assyrians or taken by the Babylonians. They lost their home. They've lost everything good to them, all their uh, built-up surplus. They've lost their wealth. They lost their freedom. They're living as foreigners in a strange land, and they're being taken advantage of at every, every turn. And the original audience would have been asking this, would have been asking, will God work now in the way he worked in the past? And the answer to this passage is a resounding yes. But the first readers would have been left with another question, and it would have been this. Will God raise up another Elijah? Will he maybe send Elijah back down from heaven if he didn't actually die? Will he come again and bring us out of this exile and end the punishment that we rightfully deserve? Give us grace again. Mix the salt with the water and throw it over our land again. Will this happen? Why do we assemble? Forty days on Thursday, it was 40 days after Easter where we remember that our Lord Jesus Christ was taken into the heavens on a cloud, very similar to Elijah. And on this ascension day, let me remind you that one greater than Elijah has come. And he has called forward the people not to come back to Jerusalem, but essentially to take Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, to spread his name and his fame across all of the world. One greater than Elijah has come. But what did he do after he came and died a sacrificial death, shed his blood, so that God's gracious character and God's just character could both be upheld with integrity. After dying for our sins, providing a full and final forgiveness, the Lord resurrected him. And what happens? He ascends into heaven. And what happens at the ascension as he sits at God's right hand, the right hand of God the Father? In a sense, he sends a double portion upon his spirit upon the church. In a sense, does he not say in John 14, you will do things even greater than me? Now listen, these kind of miracles and these sort of calling forth curses on people so that bears eat them, these are extremely rare in the Bible. Thousands and thousands, millions of people have followed the God of Israel and followed after Jesus and never ever have witnessed or experienced any miracle like this. This is why it's codified and put into Scripture. However, Jesus promises us that we have a spirit that gives to us tremendous and great power. And it seems as though in this point of history, God's Spirit is at work birthing out and growing and tilling soil in our lives and birthing fruit that we might be people filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That these things might begin to work out inside of us as we live in a world 
that's under the weight of this curse, a, a world in which we all have to taste, all have to experience a real and tangible death. God's Spirit is work inside of us now, telling us this is what the new creation is going to feel like. Peace, it's going to be inside of you. And it's going to work out inside of you into the way in which you interact in your neighborhood, with your governments, with those around you. Joy, love, kindness. These things are going to well up inside of you, boil up inside of you. It's going to be a taste of the world to come. Jesus said, you will do even greater things than me when my spirit comes upon you. And you know what? We've seen this. People whose lives were headed in a direction of entire rebellion, constantly living against their creator, hearing this message of Jesus turning, putting their loyalty and allegiance to our Savior, Jesus Christ, all because of words, all because of a, a small uh, pithy phrase or Bible verse we might share with them. We've seen this. People from one side of the globe to the other, we've seen this. God is at work powerfully in our lives, friends. He sent upon us a spirit. Here's my challenge to you. This week, pray and ask for that Spirit's power, that presence. Ask that it might manifest in your life, not that you might call bears out of the woods, but that you might be able to be agents and participants of God's grace, and that you might warn people of the great judgment that is to come. That you might continue in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ with all those people that God puts in your path this week, whether that be a neighbor, a co-worker, someone you play sports with, someone you just happen to bump into in the road. This passage is telling us Without a doubt, the God who worked powerfully in the past, he will always continue to work powerfully in the present for his people. And though he does discipline, though he does at time bring judgments, his mercy is greater. And he stands before us, hands extended, ready to extend to you mercy one more time. And when you receive and taste his mercy, he grants upon you a spirit, a spirit like the spirit that Elisha received that you might become his agent, that you might become, in one real sense, his prophet out into this world, doing works of his kingdom to everywhere you go. This is our hope. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what it means for us to be God's people. Let me pray. Our Father, would you send your Spirit upon us afresh? You know that after you... Your son, Jesus, ascended as he sat at your right hand. He sent his spirit upon the church, and we ask that your spirit would work in power in our lives. I specifically pray, Father, it seems as though there's a lot of us lacking in joy. Would your spirit come down in power and make us into a people filled with joy, people filled with patience? Make us into a people who are agents of your kingdom, who do good works for your kingdom that tell people that there is a world that is not fully seen and a world that is to come. Make us into these type of people. Use us. And Father, remind us that your mercy is always greater than your judgment. And though you very, real, very, very, in a very real way will judge, your mercy is always fresh. Make us agents of your mercy as well, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.